I imagine Christopher Lowry walking the produce aisle at Natural Grocers in Boulder, Colorado. He's there early on a weekday to pick the 30 different plants that he will blend into a smoothie. His research suggests that this concoction could have antidepressant effects. I imagine he picks up a fuzzy dragon fruit and a fresh cactus ear that the staff ordered just for him. The warmth he feels at discovering something so simple and natural is incredible because he knows it could have been easily overlooked. I can't imagine how this drink would have disgusted him as a middle schooler if he had looked at it under a microscope. On today's episode of The Ampersand, Christopher discusses his experience drinking from a natural spring as a kid and the horror he felt at seeing the microbiomes that lived there. He regrets his initial response, now having discovered that he didn't need to fear those tiny microbes. On the ampersand, we call this bringing together of the impossible the alchemy of anding. Together, we'll hear stories of humans who imagine and create by colliding their interests. Rather than thinking of and as a simple conjunction in that conjunction-junction kind of way, we will hear stories of people who see and as a verb, a way to speak the beautiful when you intentionally let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. As St. Mary Oliver asks, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Oh, I love this question. When I'm mothering, creating, and collaborating, it reminds me to replace a singular idea of what I think I should become with a full sensory verb about experiencing. I'm Erica Randall, and this is Christopher Lowry on The Ampersand. Basically, what happened was my press office at University of Bristol reached out to me because they saw a grant was ending. And we had interesting data, but it wasn't ready to be published yet. And so I said, well, we're not ready to publish that, but we are ready to publish this other story. And we think that's of broad interest. Of course, this was the showing that this mycobacterium vacci has antidepressant effects, yeah. activates serotonin neurons in the brain. Huge. Um, at that time, I mean, keep in mind it was 2007, we weren't thinking about the gut microbiome. Yeah. We just wasn't even on the radar. So the idea you could like inject a bacterium, get antidepressant effects, it's kind of, people are like, wait a minute. Wait, no, no, it's absolutely sci-fi future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really... It was really While kind of looking off the at wall. old technologies, actually, like earthy, yeah, old friends' Darwinian technologies, medicine. Darwinian medicine, yeah, exactly. but it's future thinking. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that caught a lot of, that captured the public's imagination. That's what I like to yeah. say. And the whole thing about the press release was interesting because they. I wrote a press release and they're like, no, 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 no. They're <laughs> like, this is far too technical. Here's an example from Graham Collingridge, who was head of the MRC, a unit for synaptic plasticity in Bristol. And so I, I thought about what I could say that was not like, that was, that was true, maybe like captured people's imagination, mm. but you know, was a little bit on the edge. And so I, I had a quote that said, it makes us all wonder if we shouldn't be spending more time playing in the dirt. Yeah. And, you know, scientists can wonder, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. And oh my gosh, it took off. It it's was like, off. yeah, like with, they said, they said later, it was the most highly 
a published press release that they'd ever had. So do you have merch now? Do you have t-shirts oh, that I say? Oh, I could. We need I merch. Should. Especially yeah. after the podcast. I should think about it. We're getting merch. Yeah. We're going to get some um, Play in the Dirt merch. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's, I mean, I think when I listened to you, I, I felt that same the first time before I got to meet your human self. I thought, I understand this. Mm. And, and that's where, you know, when I was thinking about our questions and thinking that you're like the Lorax and that you speak mm-hmm. for the plants, you really had this, both a, a kindness, a passion, a, a no car salesman outfit, but a, an earnestness mm-hmm. that said, we've got to... That's my Wyoming nature. That's your Wyoming, that comes from Wyoming, is the earnestness. Why well, my family homesteaded in Western Nebraska in 1886, so we didn't live on the farm. My dad grew up on the farm, but we sp- spent a lot of time there, yeah. especially in the summer. And that, yeah, starts, so very rural. Starts the, did that start to shape the questions about earth and dirt and yeah, relationship that, that to and nature? Growing up in Wyoming, I mean, I when we 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 lived in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and it was it was. Oh, it's just stunning, right? I mean, what a place. And How old were you when you were there? Uh, junior high through high school. Okay. And what was your thing? I mean, I just loved being in nature. And so, I mean, our house was on the highway south of Jackson, like five miles south. So our back deck overlooked the Snake River Valley uh, toward Idaho and the mountains. And um, my thing was just to walk off into the mountains to the east Right, and there's nothing there. It's just no one goes there because it's not particularly there's spectacular, so right? But it's just it was so peaceful. And yeah. that's amazing. And yourself, when you fall in love with your work, does it have that sense of a resurge, of a spark when you start to track something new? Like when you started to think about the relationship to depression and to different ways of thinking. Yeah, about very plan, much like, so. I love connecting dots. I love you know looking at data. And then, you know, thinking about what does that mean and, you know, how do we interpret that? And I think early on I realized that, you know, that, that it, it, our job in science is not really to, um, it's not really to come, you know, be the smart person in the room and come up with the right answer before we do the experiment. My supervisor once told me that the mark of a good scientist is not someone who comes up with the right hypothesis, whatever that means. Um, but someone who can come up with multiple alternative hypotheses because that's a measure of creativity. Mm. In other words, you look at a set of data and you think, well, how many different ways can I explain that? Or, you know, and and sometimes you have to think really laterally in ways that you haven't thought before. And I find that really, really challenging, but also really gratifying. Oh, I see so much merch in our future. There's so much we're going to do to get people excited <laughs> about I love that. the work. And, and one of the... The easiest ways I felt like you've communicated everything you've been learning was this notion of 30 plants. Mm. That to me was, it was really sexy. Like, Mm. oh, I could just shop for color and I can shop for texture and I can go into a store and I can have an experience and it can change my life on multiple planes. That, I mean, that's the best t-shirt ever made. (laughs) So, So can you just tell me how... Well, I want to know about the number 30 because I want to know about the detail because I'm certain that there's something in the there's detail. A there's a reason behind 30. Talk to me about the reason behind 30. The reason for 30 is because I was working on the gut microbiome project with Rob Knight and his amazing team and had early access to the data. And they they had this question on the questionnaire. So they send out this kit and 
they have this survey online that you fill out when you collect your sample and send it in. And one of the questions on the survey was, I think a question no one had ever asked before. And so, you know, we think about nutrition we think, oh, you need so many cups of fruits and so many cups of vegetables and that's a healthy diet, right? Stay away from this and, you know, focus on that. And the question was different because the question was, in the last week, how many different plants have you eaten? And like, that's, that's different. That's a different you know, question. that's a different question. Yeah. And then they had a, then they explained, well, what's it, you know, what counts as a plant, right? Mm. And they explained, well, you know, if you have a soup that has corn and white beans or navy beans, you know, in it, those, those yeah. are two different plants, right? But gummy bears and the six flavors gummy don't. Bears definitely we tried to count those yeah. last night at home. <laughs> you can't count and my kid bears. was like, you can't, I don't care how many colors you got, mama. You can't count gummy bears. I mean, you could probably count peanuts in a Snickers buyer, but that's really. That's as far as Let's we're going to stay go. away from that, okay, right? We're gonna, I mean, I mean, that's a treat, but that's not what we're talking <laughs> that's about. Not what we're talking about. <laughs> and so, th- th- when when the data came out, what was clear is that this was one of the questions that clearly differentiated how much diversity individuals had in their gut microbiome, mm. and that was very interesting to us because. We we felt, and there's now a consensus, that more diversity is better. And so what they saw was the more plants people reported having eaten in the last week, more different types of plants, so not volume, not cups, not teaspoons, et cetera, how many different plants? The more plants they reported eating, the more diverse their microbiome. And there were increases all the way up to... 30 or more people that reported having 30 or more plants had the most diversity. And I'm like, that's the Holy grail because I mean, I come from a background of something called the hygiene hypothesis, but the idea is, you know, we are at risk in modern urban societies for inflammatory disease because we lack exposure to a diversity of microorganisms that we co-evolved with. We're not dirty enough. We're not dirty enough. And, you know, we that doesn't mean we should be, you know, sanitizing everything all the time. So we have to distinguish hygiene, personal hygiene, like washing hands. That's important, right? Because as we all learned during the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to wash our hands so we don't get sick through pathogens. But there's another kind of avoidance of germs, right? We don't need to avoid all microorganisms. In fact, many of them are beneficial. And so if you're eating healthy plants, healthy food, and these plants have something called endophytes inside the plant that you can't wash off. And a great example that I like to use is that a three to four leaf spinach plant that you might have in a salad has over 800 different species of bacteria inside the plant. Now, that makes sense in retrospect, right? That's not something I knew before I started thinking about this. Why more plants? Why diversity of plants? Why is 30 better? But the thing is, every plant has its own microbiome. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a healthy plant, right? Just like us, plants need healthy microbiomes and diverse microbiomes to be healthy and to fend off 
pathogens. And organic, non-organic, does it matter? It does matter, mm-hmm. yeah. Organic foods tend to have higher diversity than non-organic okay. foods. Is it binary, one, zero? No, but there's certainly more diversity in plants that are grown under organic conditions. That tends to be because organic foods are grown in healthy soils that have higher diversity. Yeah. The soil, the soil has higher itself. diversity, yeah. right? Better dirt. And there's it's a bit unclear whether or how much how many of those eight hundred species of bacteria coming from the soil, because those bacteria can get from the soil into channels that carry water through the plant, etc. Or, you know, the wind can blow and it can blow some dust onto the surface of the leaves and then the bacteria get into the little pores on the surface of the leaves. We don't, we don't really know, but clearly the soil makes a difference, whether it's be, being actually extracted from the soil actively or it's just being exposed to the soil, right, and through the environmental. So when you go, when you go to pick your plants... And you're, you're farming your local grocery store. First thing, do you have a favorite checker and do they have bets on what it's going to be each month? Like, do they have like a list of 30, like Chris's 30, like oh, we haven't had beets in a minute. Do they have like a pool? There's a betting pool. Is there a secret betting pool? <laughs> no, what tends whole... to happen is people are like, oh, I don't even know what this is called. <sighs> That's amazing. The folks who are working at the store <laughs> yeah. don't even know. Okay. <laughs> And, and I'm like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's... Um, I go to dragon a, fruit. That's my first yeah, go-to. I bought a dragon fruit yesterday. See, this is all meant yeah. to be. And, and did you blend it or did uh, you eat it no, separately? No, it's because my daughter loves dragon fruit. Dragon. And I'm like, anytime one of my children asks for like a plant, you know, because they're expensive, right? And I'm like, mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> So, so 30 became optimal. Yeah, 30. Well, I mean, it's just... I know, you know but it's a good... 50 might be better. Yeah, but, but 30 is good on the like, shirt. 30, let's stick with the merch, yeah, okay? Yeah. So you do you have charts in your house? Do you track or do you just go, I'm getting the 30, I'm making a shake? Yeah, I I mean, I have I have multiple lists of like batches I've made. Okay. When I have time, I like record data. You know, which 30... Yeah, I love data. Yeah, in data. Excel, it's yeah, always in course. Excel. Um, but the, the key thing is that it doesn't it doesn't really matter what the plant is. It just needs to be 30 different plants. So it's not what you're anding with. It's just yeah. that you and, and, I mean, and, I and, there's, and. There's some subtleties to that. What I do is I make probably 18 quart jars when I make a batch, right? Because yeah. I'm blending it and, you know, adding water and blending and then another round and yeah. probably 18 jars, 12 to 18 jars. Maybe add some lemon or lime. Like a drink. Does right? the whole family sit around and toast with the the drink of the month? Uh, occasionally, we've done that. My my kids tend still tend to have it like to have it strained. Okay. Because they don't like. Because I leave it really like. There's a lot of roughage in my. Yeah. My there's shape like twigs in there. There's like bugs and, and leaves. Know, there's a there's whole a, ecosystem. Oregano. There's like stems. You know, and just chewing that on I that chew juice. On, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my kids don't like that. So, no, I don't blame but, them. You know, sometimes they'll say, "Oh, can I have some of that shake tonight?" And I'll, I'll strain it through a strainer and yeah. add some ice cubes, and they're like, "That's not bad," especially if it has some lemon juice or lime juice. Yeah, the lemon. That's the fruit. Yeah, that's it's really. Yeah, at the end, right when you drink it that night and but but you know the fact it doesn't just last a month it lasts two months or three months sometimes four months and at first i'm like why why is that and that's not expected right because anything else you put in the fridge will go off right yes ferment you pop you know you take off the lid and go poo and um 
And then I started thinking about it, and it's it's because if you you know let's just say for the ease of the math, there's a thousand species of bacteria per plant, which is probably the case. And you have thirty plants. That's thirty thousand different species of bacteria. It's like an Amazonian rainforest in a jar, right? I mean, it is so. It's such a complex ecosystem. One of the features of complex ecosystems is is that they're not vulnerable to pathogens, right? There's, they're not vulnerable to overgrowth of bad guys, right? And so sometimes people get a condition a condition called C. difficile infection. It's very hard to get rid of. But it tends to occur when someone has some kind of infection. So they take an antibiotic. They don't get better. So the doctor prescribes another antibiotic. They still don't get better. And then the doctor prescribes another antibiotic. And so what happens is when you have multiple courses of antibiotics, that microbiome in your gut, which is supposed to be really diverse and robust and resilient, like a rainforest, becomes decimated. It's like someone came in and just like, you know, chopped down half the forest, right? And all of a sudden, you don't have a diverse ecosystem anymore and you become vulnerable. And the C. difficile bacteria, which is usually present in low abundance, is like, I'm going to have a heyday. There's nobody to compete with, right? So it proliferates. And the problem is it's a pathogen. And so if you have an overgrowth of a pathogen, that's really bad because it causes destruction of your small intestine, for example. And the, the best way to restore normal function is to get a fecal transplant a fecal microbiome transplant. And I know people who've flown to London to have this. I've seen that happen on Grey's Anatomy and you just don't think it's going to be a thing. And then here we are. Because it's effective. But what are you going to do? You're going to take another antibiotic? Not another one. Right? I mean, Slash and burn in the the rainforest That's what caused the problem in the first place. Yeah, we're not doing that. So let's take a healthy microbiome and then start over. Yeah. Right? And that gets rid of the pathogen. But I think what's happened over the decades is we'll come back to the hygiene hypothesis, but as we've moved into cities and we've lost exposures to kind of microorganisms on farms and, you know, in nature as well, the diversity of our microbiomes has declined. And that we know that if you look at, you know, modern Western societies and compare the gut microbiome to say, um, you know, hunter-gatherers that are living in South America in the Amazon basin, People living in the Amazon basin have this amazing diversity. It's like, oh my God, I want that diversity. <laughs> but yeah, they have amazing diversity. We have terrible diversity. I mean, people that live in Omaha, sorry, people that live in Omaha <laughs> have really low diversity. <laughs> Did and you have low diversity in Wyoming when you were a kid? Did your I, plate look uh, like the the rainbow, that you, the forest that no, you talked about? No, definitely not. Are no. you kidding? So, you, no. Yeah. Okay, that's you a know, look. You knew the answer to that. Well, not necessarily because yeah. of the way you saw the world. Well, I mean, there. Yeah. I, I just wondered if you already, if you, if you poked at things and said, ah, meat and potatoes, maybe a little tree over here, maybe a little. Yeah, you know, I, I have some really defining moments that I recall growing up where, when we used to go to our family farm in Nebraska, we sometimes we stay there for a month in the summer, and we just kind of roam the range, you know, and just on our own all day and. One of the features of the farm is a natural spring that comes up from underground and then it flows into the creek, Kiowa Creek. 
And I used to go down to the spring and just drink the water. Mm. I'm like, oh, it's so good. It's so cold. And it's coming right out of the ground. And of course, the spring is surrounded by all this vegetation. And you can see things swimming in it, you know, little beetles and things. And then, I don't know, I must have been in third grade. And I thought, oh, I can take, I can take this into school and look at it in a microscope. And I always regretted having done that because <laughs> when I, yeah, because when I took some of this water and I put it under a microscope, you know, on a slide with a cover slip, yeah. I was in third grade and I was already a scientist, right? Yeah. And um, I looked at the microscope and all these things were swimming in the water, like paramecia, you know, with cilia and there were amoeba there kind of crawling around. I'm like, oh my gosh, I I've been be drinking, drinking that. that. But you just said the same thing about but spinach. I was, but but you know, I know, there's... I know, I know. And, it, and I regret it because I realized later, it's like, oh yeah, I should have just kept drinking it. Because uh, oh, you wasn't regret getting it at sick, that time right? and you quit drinking it. Yeah, because I thought, oh, that, we shouldn't be drinking amoeba. I mean, that's not good, right? That's not or good. And paramecia. now you know. Now I know. I mean, as long... So if you could talk to that seven-year-old self, you just... Yeah, say, I'd say, go for it. Stick your and face in there. Yeah, just go for it. There are so many tiny worlds in my mind right now after listening to you. I could follow any of them. And I know we don't have infinite time. But when there's... A, I have to ask you because it's um, it's part of our t-shirt is about anding. Do you see yourself as someone who... Who is anding or are you connecting? How do you verb with the notion that everything, this idea, this tiny world, this huge possibility, are you looking from a perspective of anding and bringing more in? Or is it about watching to see what connection lights up? Or mm. how does your brain work with that concept? Can I say connecting and anding? Yeah, please, because that's more anding. That's like extra ampersand. So a really good example of that is how we got interested in an alternative approach to treatment of depression, for example. I'm not entirely sure why I was even looking, but I do have this very clear recollection of being on the third floor of the University of Bristol Library. And this is back in the day when we had to like go to the library. Yes, the real and, like, actual and smell the books. Yes. The shelf, you know, and I remember. Yeah, I remember it was like on the sixth shelf. So I had to actually reach up and get this volume. It was a brain and you're research. Tall. Yeah. I'm and, a tall you're, guy. and you're stretching for it. Yeah. It's like a brain research article, right? From I don't know, 1970s or something. And the reason I was looking is because I had seen some citation in another paper that suggested that warm temperature could activate serotonin neurons in the brain. Of course, we had just shown that this bacterium could activate serotonin neurons in the brain. And we found that some serotonin neurons promote anxiety. People don't often know that. Some serotonin neurons can inhibit the fight or flight response or panic-like responses. And some serotonin neurons seem to be antidepressant, or we would predict they have antidepressant properties. And so this idea that serotonin neurons are kind of monolithic and, you know, they're just good for you and, you know, they're always good. That's not really true. Not really true. Not all that. There is a group of serotonin neurons that facilitates anxiety. And that's through a very specific serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2C receptor. And it's a very specific part of the brain and a very specific group of serotonin neurons that has that function. But what we found with the mycobacterium vacui is it only activated the serotonin neurons that we thought would have antidepressant properties. It's extraordinarily rare. And we're like, oh my gosh. If that's true, we might have just stumbled onto like a biomarker of things that should have antidepressant properties. And so Mbaki was our kind of 
starting point, right? But then when I saw that warm temperature could activate serotonin neurons, I went and got this brain research volume off the shelf and I opened it up to page 386 or whatever it was. I'm sure it was exactly 386. <laughs> <Probably not. laughs> and I look, at, I look at the picture and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's exact same cells that are being activated by heat. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, is, you know, this first, th- first response is like, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Research. Yeah, and you know, connecting, right? It's like, well, if MVACI activates those neurons and has an antidepressant effect, and then warm temperature activates those neurons and has antidepressant effects, then warm temperature should have antidepressant effects. So we started testing this in our models. And in fact, we saw that if we heated up our rats in this case, just put them in kind of a sauna, they're just like really comfortable and they sit in a corner and kind of go to sleep and it activated these serotonin neurons. And we're like, oh my gosh, it really does. And so then I met this kind of amazing person, Chuck Rayzone from University of Wisconsin-Madison. I saw him give a talk, a bed-to-bedside talk at a meeting of the Psychoneuroimmunology Research Society. My son thinks it's so so great that I'm a psychoneuroimmunologist. Psychoneuroimmunologist. That's better than some of the dinosaur names you oh, can say. Awesome. Psychoneuroimmunologist. Being a psychoneuroimmunologist, I can't think of anything better, right? And so I went to the PNIRS meeting. It was in Breckenridge, and he was giving like the keynote speech, and he he was talking about the use of internal heat by Buddhist monks, you know, the ones that sit on glaciers and like, you know, just a wrap around the waist and on the ice and sit there for hours and meditate. And they can do this because they can generate this internal heat and can reach this kind of transcendental state during meditation. And so he's coming at it from a very different perspective than I was. But I Had he I seen kinda, your research? No, no. I cornered him at the meeting. <laughs> yeah, and like, he did. Hey, I love your talk. This is, you know, what we're what we're finding. And we kind of started this collaboration and that culminated in doing some clinical trials using something called infrared whole body heating. And the first trial was an open label trial, meaning that the investigators knew who was getting whole body heating and so did the participants. They were depressed. And in that trial, the whole body heating decreased depressive symptoms. How would you do a placebo effect of whole body heating? Well, we, Wouldn't we you know if that. you were hot was, or not? We did that. How? Yeah. How did you, how did you, in fact, how did the, people the not know they were hot? The most important thing is when we asked people at the very end of the study, we said, do you think you were in the active heating group or the control group? The exact same, not exact, but new, there was no difference in the, the number of people that thought that they had the active heating, regardless of whether they actually got the active heating. Really? Yeah. So the placebo is very good. What we found was it almost defied belief because, you know, we designed the study. So we looked at depressive scores during the first week using self-report. And then we used a cl- clinician-based uh, diagnosis or uh, symptom survey the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, at one week, two weeks, four weeks, and six weeks. And we chose six weeks because we thought, oh, by then, you know, the, any effects are going to be gone, right? But what we found is that within one week, the people that actually got heated had far more improvement in depressive scores than people that got the placebo or sham condition. And at two weeks, and at four weeks, and at six weeks, and even at six weeks, they're still 
performing better after one heating session. And we're like, oh my gosh. You've said we this. We had no idea. You had no idea. And, and yeah. you've said this about so many of these things that feel like they could be simple but overlooked so simply that they have defied belief. Playing in the dirt, eating more plants, finding more diversity in your body, and this notion of, of heat on the brain, heat on the body, heat in the system. Simple and yet defying belief. That's some serious anding, my friend. Yeah, connecting and anding. <laughs> And, you know, there's some evidence that cold temperature can do the same thing. The same group that we think has antidepressant effect is activated by Mbaki, it's activated by heat, and it's activated by cold. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why would all of these things activate that? Let's say it's an antidepressant pathway. And one idea that we've come up with is that these are all things that throughout human evolution, even before that mammalian evolution, would have had very important adaptive value. And the state of depression is characterized by overactivities of a circuit in the brain called the default mode network. And this tends to be active when you're kind of engaged in introspection and you know, maybe experiencing feelings of guilt and shame and you know despair and just dwelling on those internal thoughts. And during those activities, this default mode network is very active. However, if you shift your attention to something external, like your environment, or another person, or knitting, or gratitude. reading a book, or gratitude, right, or sensations in your body during meditation, for example, you shift out of this default mode network mm. and you engage with the environment. We have to, we have to, I want to keep going, but we have to stop. We have to, we've made people curious enough to ask more. So before we stop though, we're going to do the quick and dirty. And with you, this is a perfect, a perfect way in because we want dirty, the good dirty. And we're going to ask you fast questions and you have to go just first thing, no perfect answer, whatever, whatever. Okay. So I'm going to give you a topic and you're going to say the first word, ideally containing and that comes to mind. Are you ready? My response contains and? Yes, please. Mm. Okay. Like the word, it's going to have either this and, or you'll see and inside the word. Ready? Okay. I might get better with time. You're going to get better with time. The weirdest plant you've ingested. And cactus leaf. I like your style. The two de-stressing activities that you should always do together. Exercising. And... Exercising outdoors. Exercising and being outdoors. Okay, we love this. A surprise place in Wyoming worth visiting. Ooh, and the Wind River Wilderness Area. Mm. Highly recommended. Mm. Wind River. Wind River. Wilderness Area. The name of a foraging restaurant. <gasps> a Womney. A Womney, but you got to put and in it. And a Womney. Oh, you're so sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> Should you discover a new gut bacteria? If you could, and you can give it any name because you're in charge, but you have to have and in it. So it's going to be like, da-da-da, and. What are you going to name it? You're going to name that gut bacteria. It's it's your new one, oh and it's got goodness. and. How about Mycobacterium sana? Is it, is it sana? Sana? Like healthy or sane? Mm, sane, okay. Yeah. But is there an and in there? Uh, oh, Mycobacterium 
and say there more. for the win because there for the win. Okay, <laughs> this on, is challenging. On each, this is like being on a game show. It is. My life is a game show. Welcome. Thanks for playing. Um, we're on each episode. This is your final question, and you can go behind door number one or door number two. No, I'm kidding. You get to say whatever you want. We have every guest offer a, a blessing, uh, and may the road rise to meet you, and may and will as if you were at a graduation or at a special event. What would your and and send off B for our listeners. And may you find health and happiness. That was Christopher Lowry, CU Boulder Associate Professor of Integrative Physiology. The Ampersand is written and produced by me, Erica Randall, and Tim Grassley. If there are folks you'd like to hear from on the ampersand, do please email us at asinfo at colorado.edu. Our theme music was composed and performed by Nelson Walker, a CU Boulder alum, brilliant cellist, composer, and a fantastic dancer. Episodes are recorded at Interplay Studios in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Erica Randall. And this is the ampersand. Ampersand.